Welcome to the Prophecy Club, and happy Thanksgiving to you. So, the situation is this. I'm going to be spending a few days with my family for Thanksgiving. So, we're going to make a fantastic offer for everybody to celebrate the Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays. So, Prophecy Club started inviting guests, making recordings back in June of 1993. Over 19 years, we made... Uh, about 330 recordings, 160 different guests, and we've offered these typically for about $30 each. Some of them are doubles for like $50. However, today you can go and watch about 300 recordings valued about $6,000 at WatchProphecyClub.com for a gift of $20 a month or $200 per year. That's a great deal, but we're about to make it even better. For the month of December... 2021, if you sign up for WatchProphecyClub.com, that's $20 a month or $200 a year, you're going to get the whole month of December, that's right, the whole month of December, free just for signing up, but you got to use the promo code WPC2021. Here's the way you do it. You go to WatchProphecyClub.com, and then you click Get Access Today, You put in the promo code WPC2021, as in Watch Prophecy Club 2021. I'll say it again. So you go to WatchProphecyClub.com, you click Get Access Today, and you put in the promo code WPC2021. You can watch any or all of, if you can watch all of the 300 DVDs during the month of December, free. Now let's go watch Sniper's View of Dimitri's Warning, by Craig Roberts, which was recorded in March of 1998. Well, who is Craig? He uh, won nine decorations as a Marine sniper. He uh, spent 26 years with the Tulsa Police Department, where he trained, among other things, SWAT teams for high-rise helicopter insertions, extractions, and surveillance. He is an expert on terrorism, counterterrorism, and he is going to expose the plan that the New World Order is going to use a series of terrorist events to bring in a New World Order uh, by causing an internal revolution, internal civil unrest, confiscation of guns, and religious persecution. Will you help me welcome Craig Roberts. I'm sure glad to be here tonight, and we're going to talk about some very interesting information. I'm going to give you some things you haven't seen anyplace else, you haven't heard anyplace else, you haven't heard it on Dan Rather or Peter Jennings or any of this stuff. I'm going to talk about some cases I worked, and tonight I'm even going to let you be a detective in a murder case. And we'll see if we can't uh, find out what was wrong with that particular case that occurred down in Oklahoma City uh, 12 months after the bombing in Oklahoma City. My last case I worked, as a matter of fact, was the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, I assisted the FBI on that at the request and put 12 months in working with them and then eventually uh, split off and started working it with other uh, investigators and freelance uh, journalists and have assisted uh, Representative Key in Oklahoma City in preparing witnesses for the grand jury, locating witnesses and so on. We're going to get into that case tonight and I'm going to tell you about it uh, uh, and, and expose some things to you that you haven't seen and make you understand that there's a lot more to it than uh, we ever saw in the 6 o'clock news. And it was held from you on purpose so that you wouldn't know the truth. And we'll get into that. But how did I get involved in all of this to begin with? 
Well, in 1987, I was in Dallas, Texas for a police seminar. It was the Airborne Law Enforcement Association down there, and it's an organization of helicopter and airplane pilots. I spent the last 14 years on the department uh, in the air support unit flying helicopters. And I had an afternoon off, and I ended up uh, wandering around with a rental car uh, in Dallas just to see what was around before I had to go to a banquet that night. And I ended up in a place called Dealey Plaza. Now, Dealey Plaza, I was amazed, was a lot smaller than what I thought it was. And, uh, of course, I wanted to go by there just to say I'd been at the location of the crime scene of the century because I'd never been there before. And I'd traveled all over the world, but that's one place I'd never been. I didn't have any particular interest in the Kennedy assassination. I didn't have any big axe to grind or torch to bear on that. It was just uh, been there, done that type situation. And I walked around and I looked at everything and, and uh, ended up on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Now by this time it's, it just opened up as a museum. And there are many displays up there, uh, all of them saying the same thing. It's basically the same thing we read in our U.S. history books today. Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone nut with a gun, killed uh, John F. Kennedy, Jack Ruby killed Oswald, Jack Ruby died of cancer, case closed. Very simple, very cut and to the point. In fact, all of the displays up there pretty much went along with that same thing. Over in one corner there's one little display that talked about uh, conspiracy theories and things. But I didn't think too much about it because that's what it said in the history book. And I remember exactly where I was the day Kennedy was killed. I was a senior in high school, I was in drafting class, it was about 11.30 when uh, they came over the speaker, the PA system, and told us that the president had been shot in Dallas. I was in Tulsa. We weren't very far away. And of course, we listened to, as the day unfolded, and we ended up getting the afternoon off to uh, go home and uh, watch it on television. If you're old enough, you probably remember exactly where you were the day Kennedy was killed. And for those of you that aren't, I'm sure you've read it in your history books, and it's Lee Oswald did it. Well, I ended up walking over to the windows next to the infamous sniper nest. And you have to remember what I did in Vietnam. I was in the Marine Corps, and for a period of, of time over there, I was a Marine sniper. And I was fairly good at what I did. I walked over to the window, and I looked down into what we call the kill zone. And I felt like somebody hit me in the head with a brick. Because instantaneously, I knew that all of the things that I had read on those displays did not happen. There's no way. It couldn't have happened, and the reason I knew it couldn't have happened is because I couldn't have done it with my Model 70 Winchester, 30 caliber, with a precision unertal scope that I had in Vietnam. Because what I would have had to duplicate was this. Being able to fire three shots in 5.6 seconds from a 6.5 millimeter Carcano with a misaligned scope by somebody who's never shot anybody before in their life from a high to low angle uh, ballistic situation at a target that's going down the hill through the trees and around a bend with the longest shot being 88 yards and two of the shots actually striking targets with one of them going by way of Tijuana to get a bumper sticker. That's the magic bullet, the one that made I don't know how many turns to get both guys in, and then come to rest in, in, on a stretcher in the hospital in pristine condition. They call that Exhibit 399. Well, this bothered me greatly because it dawned on me that somebody was lying, that there was a cover-up, and that it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald from that window or any three-shooters from that window. So I walked around Dealey Plaza again. This time I looked at it different. I looked at it with the eye of a Marine sniper. And had I done what was supposedly done that day, how would I set it up? And I ended up with people on the grassy knoll and people on two other buildings besides the Texas School Book Depository. I then ended up back inside the, uh, the sixth floor looking out and uh, triangulating all the different shots from there. And I went home 
uh, when the convention was over with, and I just happened to have a copy of the Zapruder film on videotape that I'd recorded off some TV show. And back when they, when Abraham Zapruder shot the Kennedy sequence you know, on the 8mm tape or film, you've got to remember that they had no idea that 35 years later we could sit there with a remote control and we could run it backwards, forwards, freeze frame, stop, and the whole bit and examine this thing. And I did that, and I almost wore the tape out. But all I could see was a guy that on the last shot got shot from the right front. I knew what kind of bullet it was, I knew the angle it came from, and I knew it wasn't due to some kind of jet effect or any of that stuff that some of these people come up with. Reason being is because I've seen people shot in the head and I know how it goes. And unless somebody's been out in the field and done it, they're not an expert witness. So that pretty much puts all the doctors that talk about these things, all these forensic pathologists, kind of puts them out to pasture on it. I always ask them, how many people have you shot, doctor? No one. Then you're not a witness. You're not an expert. Well, I started looking at the Kennedy assassination. I decided to investi investigate it as a simple homicide, means, motive, and opportunity. So I put my police hat on. I started digging into it. I read everything I could find on it. I read all the documentation I could get a hold of. I tried to interview as many witnesses as I could. As it turned out, most of them were already dead. I started checking on that, and I ended up having to write a book about it because most of the witnesses weren't around anymore. And I wrote a book called JFK, The Dead Witnesses, that documents the cases of 115 of these people. I saw a lot of other things that had happened in 1963 after uh, the assassination in Dealey Plaza in the Dallas area. I saw that a lot of witnesses had been manipulated. A lot of evidence had been destroyed by the FBI. Uh, all of the case evidence, all of the reports went to Washington to be investigated. Very little was investigated in the field. A lot of agents were sent on wild goose chases to interview insignificant witnesses and write 302s on them. That's FBI reports. And forward them to the Department of Justice where they were handled right in Hoover's office. And then later by the Warren Commission. I got some interesting documentation sent to me by people in various covert intelligence posts and also the Dallas Police Department that showed exactly the opposite of a lot of the documents that came out in the Warren report. So I could see a lot of manipulation in the cases. Well, I also ran into other things. I found out that once you get on this train, no matter what station you get on, you end up in this big room and it's hallways full of doors. And you go down these hallways, you open these doors, and you find more hallways full of doors. And you keep doing this, and every once in a while you find a piece of puzzle. So you put it in your pocket. At the end of the day, you start putting these pieces of puzzle on the wall, and you stand back and look at them and see what kind of picture you get. And a lot of it are disjointed pieces at first, but as the more, you, uh, the more you dig into it, the more the pieces start to fit. And I started running into the same names and the same organizations over and over again throughout history. To investigate the Kennedy assassination properly, I found out that I had to go back to the year 1773 and come forward. Because Kennedy was actually just a speed bump in the road when we got to motive. He was just a speed bump in the road to some very highly placed people. Lincoln was a speed bump in the road to the same people. So when you get into, the, into reading what I wrote about it, you can follow my entire investigation through that. But I also stumbled onto other things. When I got into World War II, I got into Operation Paperclip, where we smuggled Nazi scientists into this country. I got into bacteriological and, and uh, chemical warfare testing on American civilians by, by government agencies and on American servicemen. I got into mind control projects, MK Ultra, MK Monarch, and several others. I ended up getting into foreign and domestic terrorism being manipulated by people in, using their positions of power and authority in our own government, actually using these people to create what we call the Hegelian effect. And the Hegelian effect is, we call it sometimes the barbarian at the gate. I have something I want you to do. You don't want to do it, 
So what I do is I create fear in you in another direction so that to uh, handle whatever that fear is, you'll accept my solution. That's called the Hegelian effect, the barbarian at the gate. If I can make you fear something bad enough to give up your guns, maybe you'll give up your guns or whatever, whatever the solution I have is, whatever my end result and my private agenda is. Well, the bottom line was after a, a almost eight years of investigating into the, uh, these areas and utilizing a lot of uh, really good covert intelligence activity contacts that I had and even some federal agents that are friends and also using some of my family's assets. I have people in my own family who've been involved in the covert intelligence community and they would read uh, chapters uh, as in my manuscript as, as, they were, as they were written and then I would get suggestions on where to look next and then mysteriously in the middle of the night sometimes I would get fax, paper, fax coming out of my fax machine. I would get strange envelopes with no return address, big thick brown envelopes full of documents, photographs, all kinds of things. It just came right out of the blue and it was as if God was opening these doors for me. Finally, I ended up with a 650 page manuscript that I titled Legacy of Dishonor, Crimes and Cover-Ups of the U.S. Government. Well, I sent it to my agent in New York City and by this time you have to understand that I had written or co-authored about 20 books. I was a house author for two major houses in, in, uh, in New York City. My agent took that manuscript to ten different publishers. Not one would touch it. They kept giving it back and he couldn't understand it because it was an excellent manuscript. It was well annotated, footnoted, bibliography, indexed, the whole thing. You could look up anything you wanted. It was all the history that you didn't find in your own history books at, at school. So I got it back and I didn't know what to do with it. I'd spent eight years of my life working on this thing and digging into places where angels fear to trade sometimes as they say. And I got a call one night from one of the senior editors at one of the main publishing houses and he said, you know, you've got to get this book out. You've got to put this book out in front of the American people. They've got to see the information in here. It's critical. And I said, well, if you like it so much, why don't you take it? He says, I can't. I'd lose my job. I says, why? He says, they have editors in our publishing houses to make sure that this type of material never gets out. And the people you identify in this book own us, lock, stock, and barrel. I later found out that the CIA actually had a program called Operation Monarch and what that is, or I'm sorry, Operation Mockingbird. And Operation Mockingbird is putting editors or hiring editors in publishing houses and in TV stations and in radio stations and in the mainstream media to make sure some stories and some information never sees the light of day. It never gets past there. They have blacklisted stuff so that we are actually a very censored country. You get more news in Europe than you will in this country. They call it spiking the stories or stopping the stories. Well, I didn't know what to do about it then, but I knew I'd put a lot of work in this book and I wasn't going to let it die. And I knew the information was critical to get out to the American people. Well, I'd written a lot of books, but I always wanted to try my hand publishing. I was nearing retirement on the police department. I had about 24 months left and I decided to go ahead and just try to publish and start my own publishing company and go into that as a retirement job. And it just came to me one day to do it and I felt so strongly about it that uh, I took my life savings and, and started to uh, do just that. I did my own typesetting, I did my own cover art, the whole bit, but I couldn't afford to publish the entire big, thick manuscript of Legacy of Dishonor. So what happened was I pulled out just enough, starting with the Kennedy assassination, then moving on into the New World Order topics, because I really found out who the bad guys were, I really found out who was in charge of the bad guys, and I really found out what they were up to during this time, and I wanted to get it out first. And it came out about uh, two years ago, or three years ago, as Kill Zone, a sniper looks at Dealey Plaza. And it'll take you from the actual, uh, what I found out about the Kennedy assassination, all the way up to and through and into 
the Clinton administration. And you're going to find out that what you do is you follow my investigation step by step and see the things that I've seen. Now, this particular book is very interesting in the fact that when I got done with it, I was sitting there one night in my, uh, my office, it was midnight, and I was trying to finish this book and get it out, just get it to the printer. But I had a hard time because I couldn't write the two hardest words a writer has to write. The end. We never know when to shut up. So I had to, I had to figure out you know, what it was that I was missing. I knew I was missing an element in here. Well, I, what I'd found out, and I've got assets in, in various covert intelligence agencies that have helped me with this. What I found out was that there was an entity called the Committee of 33. And the Committee of 33 was higher than some of these other organizations you hear about, the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and all these guys. It's higher than that. They pretty much run everything. And they're made up of international people. They're industrialists and bankers and military and politicians and so on. The members change occasionally. But if you can think of the, of the biggest high roller names in the world, they're probably either on it or have a representative on the Committee of 33. The problem I had with that is these people want to have a one world government. They want to have the new world order and they want to be in charge. They're global socialists. That's what they are. They control presidents. They control kings. But they had to have a leader. Somebody had to be in charge and that is what I didn't know yet. So I walked around my office and I started looking at all my material and I'm thinking, you know, somewhere I've got, I've got the material that tells me who would be in charge of this committee. But I just couldn't figure out where it was. So I walked around and I looked up at the top shelf and I took one book off the top shelf that I had, a really great reference book, the best reference book I had. I walked over and I laid it down on my desk. I opened it up and I said, Father, if you know who this is, and I know you do, would you share it with me? Would you tell me who's in charge of the bad guys? I want a name. I want to know who it is. And so I opened the book and I put my finger down and I read this. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6.12. I felt like I got hit with a brick again. And I thought, that's it. Satan's in charge of the bad guys. Well, I already knew that, but I didn't really have him physically sitting there telling these guys what to do. And now I did. So then I had to go back and do some rewriting and I put scripture at the beginning of each one of the sections in Kill Zone. But I had a lot of material left over and I had to do something with it. And I had some really great cases and a, a whole series of case files that I wanted to use. So I got Kill Zone out and it did so well that it sold out the first printing in about four months. That gave me enough money to finance a second printing and then finally a third printing and start putting money in the bank toward publishing the next book. Now the next book, God didn't want published right then or I could have done it, but I got so busy I couldn't finish it. And what ended up happening was I got personally involved now in the Oklahoma City bombing case, in the derailment of Amtrak in Gila Bend, Arizona, and then the TWA 800 shoot down. And I did say the word shoot down. So I ended up being able, because of the delay, of putting all three of those cases in to finish the book, The Medusa File. So basically, folks, this book uh, came out, uh, and it sold out in three months, first printing. Then it sold out four months after that, and now it's in about fourth printing. And if you end up with both of these books, 
we beat New York City because you got the book Legacy of Dishonor with five additional chapters in it. And we end up winning in the long run. God knew what he was doing all along. Amen? Okay, so during this period of time, I end up getting sidetracked on these other cases. And one of the cases that I get sidetracked on is the Oklahoma City bombing case. And that leads me into a lot of other areas. And I got to be able to use my skills that I've developed, my education and experience I've developed throughout the years on terrorism, counterterrorism. And that, plus the research I did on the Kennedy assassination and all of the aftermath of the investigation on Dealey Plaza, I was able to really see through a lot of things on the Oklahoma City bombing case quite early and share with other investigators, and we kind of went a different direction than the Washington end of the FBI did. And so what I need to do to get you into uh, the flow of the situation of what we're going to do tonight is start you out with a little bit of basics on terrorism, explain who the real enemies are in this country right now, who we really have to fear, and then get you up to what could happen next as it parallels Dmitry Duderman's vision. The politics of terrorism is exactly that. To understand terrorism, what we have to understand is what is it? What is terrorism and how is it used? Terrorism is the use of fear and terror to accomplish a political end. It's normally used by forces of limited capability and limited weaponry. Now, if they had aircraft carriers and airplanes and tanks, they would be conventional forces. They don't have that. They have explosives, they have guns and knives and things like that. Targets are normally civilian in nature and impact the media with the most effect. Now, if they attack a military base, it really doesn't mean that much to us, does it? Because being in the military is part of being in a, in a vulnerable situation. You expect violence. But when you attack a marketplace or an airport or a church or a synagogue or someplace like that, then you have a tendency to get the public's attention because those are places that people go to. You go to the supermarket. If somebody puts a bomb in the supermarket, pretty soon you're afraid to go to supermarkets. Same thing with buses and trains and airplanes. Okay. Terrorism cannot be effective without the media. If there isn't any media coverage on terrorism, then it doesn't do any good. And nine times out of ten, terrorists take um, credit for what they do. They call up and say it was the such and such organization that did this. And sometimes two or three organizations try to take credit for one thing. But if they don't take credit for it, it doesn't do any good. They can't further their objective. Okay, so at the end of the, or at the, the, on day three of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, we had a strange thing happen. Even though all of our information, all of our leads were leading to Middle Eastern connections, including stuff with Israeli intelligence, to the Oklahoma City bombing, all of a sudden the media launched on who? The militias, the right wing, the NRA, Pat Robertson, anybody to the right of Charles Schumer and Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer were all, and the Clintons were all of a sudden suspect terrorists. We had nothing, and I repeat this again, we had nothing during the investigation to point that direction. There were no ties in the Oklahoma City bombing in the early days to point to anything except the Middle Eastern connections that all the witnesses saw. And we'll go through that tonight because I'm going to tell you what happened in Oklahoma City on day one by witness, by witness, by witness, so that you can see what we were dealing with. Then you're going to find out that the media misdirected us and eventually destroyed and ruined the investigation on purpose. Now. 
they went off and, and, and started, remember when they had the cameras already set up at Nichols Brothers Farm in Michigan? And they raided that place with a SWAT team and the TV's already there. Now that's kind of unusual, isn't it? Those guys would normally be in New York City. How'd they get to Michigan so quick in the middle of nowhere? Well, that was all staged. It was all set up to misdirect the American population, misdirect the, the minds of the American people, and that's a form of what we call media mind control, to get us on a different, different sheet of music. And remember, we do something and we blame it on whoever our particular enemy is, and we make you believe that that's who it was. Then we pass laws against those guys. That's the way it works. That's the Hegelian effect. Now, let's talk about who real, the real terrorist threat in this country is first. We have the Islamic Jihad. Well, the Islamic Jihad is the Holy War, okay? But it's also an organization. Underneath Islamic Jihad, uh, the Holy War, we have many organizations, but the main ones I want to talk about tonight are the Palestine Liger Liberation Organization, the PLO, the PFLPGC, that's the Palestine Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, Hamas, Hezbollah, the ISI, which is in Pakistan, and the Mujahideen. Now, the PLO, we know who they are. They're originally Al-Fatah, and they were uh, involved in the 68 Munich's massacre. Uh, they've been involved in a lot of things in Israel. Uh, it's mainly the Palestinians. There are several factions of them, but uh, the one leader we know, we see in the news all the time, is Yasser Arafat. The PFLPGC, the, the Popular Front for the Lib Liberation of Palestine General Command, you may not be familiar with, so I'll explain who they are. There's one particular case that they were involved in that our national government would have us believe otherwise, and that is they were involved in something called the bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. Now, the, the story that we get out of the FBI right now, and have been for a number of years, is that there was a piece of timer that was found in Lockerbie amongst all the wreckage, and what it was was a little tiny brown piece of plastic, a piece of a microchip, a piece of a microchip. And this was sent to the FBI lab, and it was traced to a component part of a timer made by the Mebo company in Switzerland. And from them, it was sold, however they found this out, sold to the East German government who provided it to Gaddafi in Libya, who in turn uh, had two of his intelligence officers go to Malta, build a bomb inside of a radio, put it inside of a suitcase, put it on an airplane in Malta, on Air Malta, and it went unaccompanied from Malta to Frankfurt, Germany, changed planes, went to London Heathrow, changed planes all by itself, then got on the, the, the uh, TWA plane, I mean the Pan Am plane, took off and then blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Folks, that didn't happen. This was investigated by some very good investigators that were working for Pan Am and for other people. And what they, de what they determined happened was this. We had a Delta Team Force go to the Mideast to try to do a hostage rescue. The leader of the Delta Team Force was a major named McKee, McKay. And he found out that his contact people that were set up for him by the CIA were drug runners. They were people out of the Bekaa Valley of Syria. Now the Bekaa Valley is, also produces the terrorists. So the drug runner families and the terrorist families are usually one and the same. Well, he didn't want to work with terrorists. He didn't want to work with drug runners. In fact, he didn't like the idea that the CIA was involved in drug running. So he was on his way back with his team to Washington after he aborted the mission to tell everybody that I'm not working with those people and you need to know what's going on over there. And the CIA is smuggling heroin into this country through this network that goes to Frankfurt, Germany, and then in this, a suitcase full of heroin would go from Frankfurt to London and London to New York City. 
Well, he never made it. He and his second command were on Pan Am 103. But there's more to it than that. It seems that there were some other things going on as well. The PFLP GC, the Palestine Front, or Papillary Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, was hired <clears throat> to knock down that airplane because it was American and because it was a 747. Now, they set up headquarters in Neuss, Germany, outside of Frankfurt, and a bomb maker named Merwan Kresot built the bomb. And he put it in a Toshiba radio, and he gave it to a kid who was an aspiring drug runner out of, out of uh, the Bekaa Valley who, who took the, the luggage and checked it in, and it was in the same type of suitcase that they always smuggle the heroin in, so it went its own path through baggage handlers that knew exactly what they were doing. They thought it was heroin, and they put it on the airplane. And then when it got to London Heathrow, the same thing happened. This kid was on the airplane when it went down. He was sacrificed, wasn't even told what was going on, and when the bomb blew up aboard the airplane. <clears throat> but what happened was... We actually had something else that uh, happened to this country about that time. If you remember back, we had the USS Vincennes. And the USS Vincennes was in the Persian Gulf when it thought it was being attacked by an Iranian uh, F-14 Tomcat. The airplane took off. It got within the radar area. They engaged the AG's weapon system, and they shot the airplane down, and they scattered people all over the water. Well, because of that, it turned out to be, by the way, an AS-300 Airbus full of pilgrims on their way to Mecca. Because of that, the Khomeini government declared us the great Satan and issued a fatwa on us. Now, a fatwa is an irrevocable contract for the, for the uh, Islamic Jihad, the Holy War. And once a fatwa is, is invoked, it's never withdrawn until it's completed. And the fatwa was this. They wanted 10 jumbo jets blown up or shot down for the price of the one that they lost. Pan Am 103 is believed to have been the first. Now, the FBI would have us believe, in fact, this current administration would have us believe, that it's these two Libyan intelligence agents when in actual fact all of the investigation proved otherwise. I've got the whole story in the Medusa file that names names and, uh, and, and actually, actually gives dialogue of people who talked about this and were involved in the planning of it. Then we have Hezbollah and Hamas. We, those are very active. Hezbollah is the party of God, and they're, they're all very active in, in the Middle East and starting to become active in this country as well, as the PLO is. We have also ISI in Pakistan. That's the internal security element of Pakistan. That's the Pakistani version of the CIA. Now, just you might find it interesting right now that with the Clinton reduction in force and the Bush reduction in force that we've gone through in the aftermath of the Gulf War, we are the eighth most powerful military force in the world. We're number eight, the United States is. Pakistan is fifth. China's one, Russia's two. Think about that. Now, the ISI basically was working with the CIA in training the Mujahideen along the Baluchi area of, of Pakistan, the western end of Pakistan, which is along the Afghani border, back during the Afghan war when we were sending the Afghani Mujahideen in to fight the Russians. After the Afghan war ended and the Russians went home, uh, we, we pulled out of these training camps, there was over a hundred of them along the border, and the ISI took them over. The ISI, being very mercenary, wanted to do something with them, so they began training Islamic terrorists for fun and profit. And uh, anyone that was, that was uh, 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 part of the Islamic Jihad that wanted to send their people from any country, didn't matter what it was, there to be trained, could do so for a fee. 
Once these people were trained in these terrorist training camps, a lot of the instructors, by the way, were former Mujahideen, they were sent back to the countries they came from, or they were infiltrated into countries that became their targets, their missions. One of the major countries, in fact, the major country, uh, is us, the United States. Israel is one, of course, and uh, Egypt is another, and there's countries in Europe, and also Bosnia. We now have Mujahideen, we now have Muslim terrorists being trained, sent to Bosnia to, uh, for the Muslim side to face our guys. Now, the ones that are sent into this country come in through two directions. One is through Mexico, through Mexico City, through a PLO office down there, and the other is through Cebu Island in the Philippines, Cebu City on Cebu Island. That's the home of terrorism in the Western Pacific. And we'll, see, we'll start seeing some of these names cropping up again as we go through the material tonight. You remember Ramsey Yosef? He's the guy that got caught being part of the World Trade Center bombing. Well, he had planned to blow up 10 jumbo jets himself. In fact, he'd already tried to blow up one. He, his office was in the Philippines in Manila, but he'd also been in Cebu City and rubbed shoulders with those people there. So we, if we keep our eyes on what happens in Cebu City with our intelligence resources, and then on Mexico City and on London, then we can pretty well tell who comes to this country just by just reading the manifest and with background checks on them, find out who the terrorists are before they ever get here. I don't think we're doing that very well. And then, of course, we've got some remnants of the Mujahideen that have gone into the, to the terrorist underground. Now, who supports these people? The players, basically, under Iran, are Hezbollah, Hamas, the PLO, and the ISI. Now, Iran is, the, of course, the Islamic fundamentalist. <coughs> Iran and Iraq have always been enemies. Before Iraq was Iraq, it was Arabia, and they are Arabs, they speak Arabian. The Iranians, on the other hand, are Persians, they speak Farsi, and they've never gotten along. But when we're in the picture, they have a tendency to join together because they have an old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, once they've satisfied themselves, they've done whatever it is they want to to us, then they will go back to fighting each other as they always have. So that's why you see Iran supporting these people, and you see also Syria and Iraq supporting basically the same players, including other terrorist organizations. Now what's pretty frightening today is the weapons that they have available to them. It used to be plastic explosive, dynamite, TNT, assassinations, things like that. But now they also have in their arsenal many other things that we'll talk about, including biological, chemical, and yes, even nuclear. The main threat today that we have in this country is terrifying. At the end of the Gulf War, we had 10,000 Iraqis that were brought into this country through Guam. They were um, part of the Isra uh, Iraqi National Congress. Congress. They were anti-Saddam Hussein. They escaped out of Iran. They, were, they, uh, they sought asylum. The State Department put them in Guam and eventually brought them into this country. Not too much to fear from most of those people. But something else happened about the same time. You remember the 60,000 or more uh, soldiers that surrendered to us as we went through the gap into Kuwait from the trenches. Well, behind those guys were the Republican Guard. Now, the Republican Guard's made, by several made up of several divisions, and there were a lot of those guys that didn't surrender. We had to physically fight them, had to physically capture them. Of that lot, 
We got over 3,500 were brought into this country by the State Department. And they brought, were brought into Carlisle, Pennsylvania, then resettled all over the country in the major cities, and then eventually filtered out in some of the smaller cities. Those guys, in turn, started forming terrorist cells. And we know that they were settled in New York City, Boston, Houston, Miami, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth area, Oklahoma City, Los Angeles, San Francisco and Seattle, Denver, and then later on into other cities as far down as Tulsa and, and probably a city the size of South Bend. I don't know. Now, the, we, the reason we know about this is the Veterans of, or, or the uh, VFW, the DAV, and the American Legion all published it in their magazines and they said, hey, wait a minute. This is the country that leaves our POWs and MIAs behind in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, but yet we bring enemy POWs that fought against us over here, resettle them in this country, pay them to be here, give them a job, and give them a place to live. Something's wrong. Write your congressman, write your senator. So a lot of us did, and we, we got it shut off, but we think that there may be as many as 5,000 that actually did get into the country. And they're all over the place, and we may run into those guys again. In fact, we will run into some of them again when we go to the Oklahoma City bombing case. Okay, so how do these guys think? We shall never call for or accept a negotiated peace. We shall only accept war, jihad, the holy war. It's bombing, but they don't know how to build a bomb. So they said, we'll build it for them. And he said, well, where do I get the money? We'll provide the money. What do I use? Well, you're going to use real explosives. Well, I don't want to use real explosives because it might go off. Well, if you use real explosives and we do a sting operation and we catch them, we can make it in court. But if you use something that's not going to work, we, we may not be able to make it in court. So we want you to go ahead and use real explosives. Well, they did. The sting operation didn't work. The bomb went off. And that's a matter of court record uh, on the court, of, court trial. And it was in the New York Times, and you can look it up at the public library. So we had the FBI actually involved at that time in the bomb-making business. That's not the way you do law enforcement, folks. That's not the way you protect the public. You don't build dangerous devices and then go arrest the guy. That's almost entrapment. You let them do it, then you arrest them before they can do anything with it. And it didn't quite work this time. Well, we're going to find out another time where it probably didn't work as well. The next thing we got into was the Murrah Building, Oklahoma City. And what is it? Category 2, a public building. And we're going to go into it in detail tonight because I was deeply involved in that investigation. Following that, we had Amtrak, which is the only mass transportation ground that we've got in this country. It's a train. It's a passenger train. We don't have anything else. And then finally, right after that, we have what? TWA 800, the only mass transportation air that we have. And I predicted when I was working the Amtrak investigation with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office that the next target would either be a large gathering of people such as a sporting event or a parade or a city or something like that or it would be a jumbo jet. The reason I said jumbo jet was two reasons. One, because of the fatwa due to the USS Vincennes shoot down of the AS-300 Airbus and number two, it was mass transportation air and it was it would be an international flight of an American carrier of the biggest plane that they've got, which at that time was a 747. And then finally, the last thing, and we haven't seen it yet, is a large gathering of people. Now, the large gathering of people could have been the Olympics. And when I told the Maricopa County people about this, they said, we've got a Super Bowl coming up. This was back right after the Amtrak derailment. And so they put extra security on to watch the water, because I told them, 
you know, this could be biological or it could be chemical, not just bombs. Get the bomb dogs, but start checking the water supplies, check food supplies and stuff like that. And they put extra security on and nothing happened. Same thing at the Olympics. We were really afraid something was going to happen there, but the military came in with uh, uh, special people to uh, in inspect all of the stuff that was coming in. They were looking at all the food, the water. They were watching everything with cameras. Um, I'm surprised that little backpack bomb even got in there. But uh, obviously, we didn't have a big biological hit at the Olympics. So we're still waiting for this one, and we'll talk about it a little bit more a little later on. Now, in the Oklahoma City bombing case, something very interesting happened. Right after Nichols Brothers Farm was hit with a SWAT team and searched, we had a media uh, launch on the militias, the right wing, the NRA, everybody that's not a left-wing extremist is categorized a right-wing extremist, terrorist, uh, whatever. Okay? Now, we're watching this from the field wondering where they're getting this information. I can't believe they're getting this because everything we're getting is Middle Eastern terrorist. Everything. With, with the exception of John Doe 1. Okay? The sketch of John Doe 1 didn't look like a Middle Eastern terrorist, but all the eyewitnesses and all the other sketches were. So I called some people in New York City I knew, and I said, I want to find out where, where ABC, NBC, CBS, and the papers and everybody is getting all this malicious stuff. I said, this is ridiculous because we don't have anything. They're not out of here in the field investigating this. We didn't give it to them, so where did they get it? Well, they started checking, and they found out it came from these places. The first one was the Anti-Defamation League of the B'nai B'rith. Now, the ADL is very left-wing. It's very socialist. And their natural enemy is anybody that they consider the right-wing. Well, the militia fits in there, so they went after those guys. And, of course, then later on, all of a sudden, we start getting all of these experts uh, talking to the media about uh, terrorism and about militias and stuff. And they're off in the ADL or the next one, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, Southern Poverty Law Center is a guy named Morris Dees. And he's a very left-wing socialist type. Uh, he originally started out as a self-appointed watchdog for the Ku Klux Klan. And he convinced a lot of people in this country that there's something great to fear about this huge, terrible movement of the Ku Klux Klan. They're out there, they're everywhere, and they're out to get you. I'm the watchdog. I've got a newsletter called Klan Watch, and I'll send it to you if you'll donate money to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, he got donated a lot of money. But eventually the Klan started, you know, re being reduced in significance, like you know, the Klan leader in Tulsa quit because he got tired of going to meetings where him, only him and two other guys showed up. So this was happening all over the country. We saw a lot of the KKK people start to migrate over and get into things called the Aryan Nation, the White Aryan Resistance, you know, the Stormfront skinheads, boneheads, whatever they are. They started getting into all these neo-Nazi type, type things. And I want to say something for the record right now. Neo-Nazi, the word neo-Nazi, okay, or Nazi, either one. We keep hearing the New York City media saying right-wing neo-Nazi extremist, okay? There is no such thing, folks. Nazis are not right-wing. They're left-wing extremists. See how they even blame that on us? They are far left-wing because they're national socialists. The right-wing extremists are called anarchists. Anarchists are people who don't want any government. Leave us alone. We'll be fine. We don't want you. We don't want your government. Not neo-Nazis and, and Nazis and National Socialists, they want to be the government and they want to control everything so long as they're in charge. 
So there's a big difference, you see. So anytime somebody says those right-wing neo-Nazis, you say, whoa, wait a minute, that's the left wing. But they're turning around trying to blame that on the right wing as well. So Dees comes along and he makes himself now the appointed watchdog for, against the militias. And he puts up stuff on the internet and he goes around the nation speaking on speaking tours and things like that. And he puts out another deal. And what's really sad, these newsletters go to law enforcement agencies and a lot of these officers, they don't know the difference. They think it's a legitimate deal because it's a real nice newsletter. It looks very professionally done. What they don't realize is there's a big private agenda behind it. This one's called Militia Watch. And if you get onto uh, the internet and you look up the Southern Poverty Law Center, he's got all these terrorists listed by name. And you read in there, and some of these guys, they haven't ever bothered anybody. But Dees doesn't like them. Now, I watched Dees when he came to Tulsa, Oklahoma. He gave a, a, a speech at our, one of our colleges there. I watched this guy, and he made this big deal for an hour about malicious terrorists, terrorists, malicious, militia terrorists. And he did this, you know, all through this whole thing, ingraining into the people out there that that's the big problem in the country, that these, that these gun nuts, these radicals, these NRA members, and so on, are out there to get us, and they're everywhere, and I'm watching them. And then, at the end, people sent up little cards with questions on them. One of the cards had this question. What do you think of Christian fundamentalists? And he read that, and he says, Christian fundamentalism is far, far more dangerous than the militias. Forty books, $800 value for $100. Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy is a deep dive into Bible prophecy. Miss the Mark is the book you give to people that you never want to take the mark of the beast. God's Warnings to America's 101 Modern Prophecies, everything from Dimitri Dudeman to rest of the most popular, the most credible prophets out there. Tribulation Secrets in Daniel is the book that you read to understand as a tribulation saint, what you need to know. And then how pre-trib one, you'll settle your question about the rapture. Now, you can get all five of these in a giant package. We offer them in shrink wrap sets. Shrink wrap sets of 10 for the Understand Bible Prophecy. Miss the Mark is in shrink wrap sets of 10. God's Warning is shrink wrap sets of 10. Daniel is five. How pre-trib one is five. So it's a total of 40 books. Valued at $800, all for a gift of just $100 at prophecyclub.com. The good news is EMP Shield has devices the military testing facility says protect 100% against EMP, solar flares, lightning, power surges, backed by a 10-year warranty and a $25,000 insurance policy. View simple video installation instructions for home, vehicles, RV. You can have electricity in a blackout. Use the promo code PROPHECY for a $50 gift card, and it helps your Prophecy Club. These days, emergency food is mostly sold out, but HeavensHarvest.com has all sorts of emergency supplies and food in stock. Their food comes in square stackable buckets, breakfast, entree, protein, fruits and vegetables, I recommend you have at least 12 months of food for each person in your family. Receive a free box of heirloom seeds when you enter the promo code STAN at HeavensHarvest.com. Promo code STAN. Terry Saka is a prophecy student, and he reads his King James Bible, and he believes in winning souls so much he is supporting the Prophecy Club so that we can win more souls. So if you want to support someone that loves prophecy and wants to win souls, 
I'm going to send you to cornerstoneassetmetals.com where you can get all sorts of precious metals, gold, silver, rhodium, palladium, and things like that. cornerstoneassetmetals.com Click like, share, subscribe, and send to a friend.